0: Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer
1: Alex, question Are you a safety first or a safety third kind of climber?
0: I think I'm probably more a safety-first kind of climber than people might think. <laughs> I, th- I think people maybe think of me as safety-last, but I think I'm pretty close to safety-first. <laughs> I don't think you're so, safety-last.
1: You know, maybe second.
0: Yeah, safety-second. Is that a, is that a type of climber? <laughs> I don't know. Could be. No, I, th- I, th- yeah. I, think, uh, I think I'm a pretty safe climber,
1: except for when I choose to do things that are relatively unsafe. I'm curious whether you think it's possible to ever be a totally 100- percent safe climber like in, like for instance anytime you open up a guidebook or you buy a new piece of gear there's always a warning label that says climbing is an inherently dangerous activity etc
0: yeah I don't know I mean no I I think it's basically possible to be a safe climber it just depends I mean climbing is so broad it's true that there is inherent risk in climbing but I think it's easy to go an entire lifetime as a climber without having any serious accidents
1: yeah um, so this week on the roundtable, we're going to tackle safety. And what does that word even mean? Is it possible to be a climber and be safe? Uh, Alex, who's going to join us for this week's roundtable?
0: This week we have Pete Takeda, who is the editor of Accidents in North American Climbing. He's also a long-time, well, lifelong climber who's done a little bit of everything throughout his, his I hate to call him old, but you know, throughout his long career as a, <laughs> as, a, as a veteran outdoor rock climber. And he's really seen the sport
1: change over the years. Uh, Lisi and Lauren are going to join us from our team, so I think we're ready to dive in. Let's start making shit up. That's right.
0: (laughs) Okay. Isn't that that the essence of a roundtable? We just randomly (laughs) just make shit up. Yeah,
1: pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Here we go. This is Climbing Gold.
0: Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's let's go then. So, uh, so Pete, you want to just start with uh, give us uh, give us your basic bio?
2: Yeah. So I'm Pete Takeda. You know, I've been climbing for. I mean, I, I added it up. I think I've been climbing for 42 years, and pretty much have climbed in uh, every genre of climbing. And uh, you've climbed 42 years? Yeah. Thought like you were only like 40. No, how, how old are you? I'm so old. I, I only want to say. I mean, I'm in my late 50s. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. You've been
0: using uh using a lot of sunscreen. You look great. <laughs> yeah, it's just
2: <laughs> it's, it's all the clean
0: living.
3: Remember yeah. when we yeah, first sure. yeah.
2: remember when we first met in Waco tanks? I don't remember Waco. Didn't we climb uh didn't we climb Lurking Fear together though? No, we climbed so we, we did climb in the valley, but uh I remember that I first met Alex Honnold in Yeah, it was the Rock Ranch in Waco t- tanks, and that was the two thousands. And I think it was just prior to you. Uh, soloing Moonlight Buttress but, uh, but I knew who you were already I'm like oh this is a guy to watch <laughs> and you come in and you're yeah. like oh yeah I just wanted to check out bouldering because you know I just wanted to see what it was like <laughs> and I remember <laughs> handing you a bottle of whiskey and I was like you see those three girls over there you're like yeah I go they're gonna go on a Moonlight bouldering thing you should take this and go with them <laughs> I do not remember. Are you sure you're thinking of the right person? So, oh, so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It was, it was you. Because I remember you're, you're trying something like like loaded with power the next day. And yeah, you're like, something, you said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, I didn't expect it, but bouldering's kind of hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is kind of hard. Yeah. But So did, did did I did I take the whiskey? That, you know, then what happened?
2: I'm like, what happened to the girls? To the I, I don't know. I, I don't I, think... like,
0: like did he were, send the boulder? So, yeah.
2: You are so taken by the bouldering. I think we forgot to have that conversation. I'm sure you didn't drink huh. it. Did? Yeah, well, so I was kind of drunk. Well,
0: I, I know I didn't drink it. I would definitely remember if I'd <laughs> taken a bunch of whiskey and chased some ladies to Boulder. I know I didn't do that. But I'm like, but then what happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, huh. when, when you walked in, you looked a little bit bored and maybe slightly disoriented. And me, having hmm. been embedded there for weeks, I figure I would uh, point you in the right direction.
0: So, so give us your uh, your actual bio though. Besides being an instigator of trouble and, and the Waco Rock Ranch, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been climbing for whatever forty forty plus years. Uh, yeah, I, I lived in Yosemite for seven years, so that's kind of my that's kind of where I grew up and learned how to climb. And, you know, I was around for the birth of sport climbing, the birth of indoor climbing, uh, the birth of bolted mix climbing, all that kind of thing. So been a participant in all these different genres at, a, I, I think, a decent level. Not A, not A, but maybe B plus over the, over the years. And uh, I think I've done like 15 Himalayan expeditions, been to Alaska a bunch. Okay. Yeah, I've been to think Peru, like 15 expeditions. So Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of under the radar, uh, a little bit. Yeah. I just want to go climbing. That's, that's my thing. (laughs) And I'm also working on a book project. So I've written a couple books, but I have a book project and, uh, it's, it's the history of American climbing from 1964, pretty much to the point that you solo El Cap because to me that's kind of the end of like a relatable the point. end of history. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the end of history, but I think one has <laughs> yeah. to have context to look back, but it's definitely this distinct bookmark in history. And I think past that point, you know, things are still like coalescing and maturing and kind of getting into sharper focus and context. So yeah, that's, so in exchange for me sitting on this, um, you know, podcast. You have to. We have to do an interview sometime. So
0: that's that's fine. If if I get to end your history book, I'm I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: like the last, it's, it's the last it's the last word word in uh, American climbing history. Yeah.
1: So Pete, you're obviously the editor of Accidents in North American Climbing. Lauren, you've you've helped as an editor as well. Um, I've been in the book. Alex, I think you have too. Is that right? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, well, I am sure. I we, we double checked. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. Uh, which which thing am I in? Uh, you were, I think, in 2016. Um, would that have been right? Oh, I wrote up. Yeah, I wrote up when uh, when
0: Sonny dropped me at the at uh, <laughs> index. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. That's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. So, so yeah, I have been in it kind of recently. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I, for, I forgot that I wrote that up. Has anyone else appeared in it? Actually, like besides editing it, no, only Alex and I. I mean, I, I look back, I, I
2: should have been in there a bunch, but I kind of escaped on my own power and never talked about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, like It shouldn't be embarrassing to be in it. We should look at it as uh, what we're doing is sharing an accident, an experience, and through that, we're informing the general climbing public. Well, that's why I wrote up
0: my last accident in 2016. So it's kind of like it, it's an it was an easy accident to occur, and you know, it's kind of like well, it makes sense to to remind people that you know, if you're not paying attention, you can totally botch things. Yeah, what was the accident? Out of curiosity. It was a. Uh, My now wife lowered me off the end of the rope by accident. You know, it's just her lowering me off the end of the rope, but it wasn't really her fault because she had just started climbing and I was using a rope that was too short. And, you know, basically I set everything. I like set her up for failure. There was like no knot in the end of the rope. I was like, here we go. Let's do this thing. And then it turns out the rope is too short. But it was kind of a confluence of a bunch of things where like right before I started to pitch, I switched to her parents' rope because I was like, oh, we can leave a top rope on it for them. You know, and it turns out their rope was way shorter than my rope. And, uh, you know... It was like all those kinds of things that add up. And so I only fell like 15 feet and I, you know, I got banged up, but it wasn't that serious. But, you know, it was a sort of obvious and preventable. I mean, ex- exactly the kind of accident that you read about in accidents in North American mountaineering. <laughs> You're like,
2: oh, what a, what a botch. Yeah, it's funny. Like an accident like that is like, it's the Swiss cheese effect. It's, uh, you know, a couple things line up and suddenly you have this hole. You can put your finger through with a, in a piece of cheese. So yeah no that, that was exactly
0: it we're kind of like oh several things happened and then as a result i fell and got hurt you are like well
1: that's why you write it up so that people pay attention to all the different things do you feel pete like is that the point of the book is that basically to kind of educate and... Yeah, i think it is to
2: educate i think you know because i remember reading accidents in north american mountaineering when i was just starting climbing and you know there's kind of this morbid interest i had as a teenager in well what happens to other people when they do this or do that Uh, and that later grew into just an interest in well what are the factors that went into contributing to an accident and this was especially as i grew more and more sophisticated with my climbing we are here to you know portray and report accidents and in some cases provide advice or information that might be helpful. I think where there's a little bit of a gray line is, you know, we don't have a prescription for, in other words, we don't prescribe a specific solution for a specific accident because there's so many things that go into any one given accident. And there's also no exact right way to do Specific
0: things so but it is helpful the way you guys categorize the accidents where you know at the end It always summarizes it with like you know fall with poor gear and loose rock or whatever You know breaks it into categories where you're kind of like these are the things that contributed to an accident And I think I I always really like that where you're kind of like these are the handful of things I mean it might not be prescriptive where it's like this is what you should do in the future exactly, but it does Break them into categories that help you identify which factors cause which accidents
2: yeah, I mean thanks for saying that. You know, it's and so I, I think what it does is it gives the user a chance to to ponder and think about well, what what could have been done to prevent this and what are perhaps the best practices? And it, you know, we're trying to get people to educate themselves because that's what it actually takes these days in climbing. And you know, every so often I get an indignant email saying, You should have told this person to always use three points of contact or something like that. And I'm like, well if we all use three points of contact, we would still be climbing five, seven. And so yeah, we tell, have to tell that to Chris Sharma. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chris, like, yeah. Three He's using one contact. point of contact. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Like, no points. yeah. 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 So, exactly. He's just flying between holds. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think sometimes people wish there was a, uh, like a distinct singular prescription we could give as a solution, but that's not the business we're in. And I don't think that, can be reflected in climbing. Because climbing is so many things, as we all know.
0: That's that's the real value, I think, in in reading Accidents of North American Mountaineering is that, you know, you might want black and white answers, like, always make this kind of anchor, always do whatever, but when you read the book, and especially when you read it over multiple seasons, you start to see that it's all gray area. You know, because I, I always personally broke it into categories of this is a terrible thing that befell people versus these people made a terrible mistake. And, of course, there's a bit of gray area in between that as well. But it's like when you read enough of them, sometimes just terrible things happen, you know, where like people are doing everything right and they just get hit by a rock that was like spontaneous rock fall and then it's epic, you know. But then sometimes you're like, what an idiot, I can't believe that person did that thing. Like, that is so bad. And then there's this huge spectrum in between and I think that it gives you a sense, like basically it just helps you with statistics, you know, because otherwise you think of climate accidents as only what you've heard happen to one of your friends or you've like heard through the grapevine. But when you read the book enough, you realize that there's this huge array of things that can happen in climbing and and to some extent it is a numbers game you know it's like you just see that we were all numbers i don't know i've, I've always really liked North, the
2: accidents in North American mountaineering the thing we try to do is you know we probably like look at maybe 300 accidents a year like every single accident that gets sent in or reported in some way or another and you know we'll take like 100 of those and make it into these narratives. And, you know, these narratives are these bite-sized little stories, you know, person X, Y, you know, got together to go climb something or another. At the beginning of the day, they forgot to do one thing. And as they were climbing, this unfolded. And then there's a distinct ending to it. So I'd like to think of it as, I mean, I don't want to call it entertainment, but it is engaging. Like there are these complete little stories. So, you know, to your point, like I used to sometimes read these things and I'd be all, oh my God, these people are such idiots. And I even, as I'm editing, sometimes have that feeling. But the (laughs) the lucky thing about being in this editorial position is I think back and I go, wait a minute, this person was a total idiot, but didn't you do that too? You just got away with it, Pete. So you know, it's really humbling in a way because I get to think back and go, wow, like, yeah, I remember when I did that, I put in a crappy ballet, and my partner had to take, but quickly got back on the rock. And so didn't pull me off the cliff, stuff like that. So,
3: yeah.
4: Yeah. And that's what I always thought was the coolest of like helping people write up their stories for the accidents book, you know, or working with people through like their reports. And is that like, primary cause and contributory causes list that Alex was talking about that I think is so interesting that provides that like reflection that you were talking about, Pete. Like, you know, if you look at Alex's accident, it's like, well, the direct cause of the accident is that he was dropped off the end of the rope. But when you look at like the thing, the more important thing really is to look at all the contributing factors like miscommunication and Maybe rushing and maybe we're distracted and inexperienced, and you know, all those things that you're like, oh, that's where you get like the big takeaway point. Like, we all know that you're gonna like fall to the ground if you get dropped off the end of the rope. That's not really where the learning is. It's like, well, why were you in that? You know, like, why did that happen? Like, oh, switching of the rope, like, all those details are the things that I feel like you're like, oh, okay, that's what I yeah. feel like, where like a lot of the learning happens. And I love that, like, contributory list, you know, of like, was I off route? Was I exceeding my abilities? Was it dark? You know, was I just like gripped out of my mind, you know, and like not making very good decisions? Like those are all things, you know, where it's like, or is there an incoming storm and we're like trying to move fast? Like those are the sort of things that actually cause accidents and like provide all that insight other than just like, oh, I fell and that's why I got hurt, you know,
2: and, you know sometimes there's these small things that throw people off it's like and it causes them to lose attention so in alex's case it's like well i was using i i switched over to my girlfriend's parents rope so something that takes you out of like your normal process and procedure distracts you and then yeah something happens because it, it seems to me that you know it's almost the majority of accidents are due to inattention like that people already know what but how to do things right? But it's that moment of distraction that gravity's always there, and <laughs> it's always waiting to get you.
0: I always love the the to what Lauren was saying the the sterile language in the in the reports. So it was like you know f- failure of protection and and uh, you know off route and whatever. Basically, just like a handful of little sterile like. And then this thing happened, but you're like the reality is some total freaking gummy is having the epic of their life and then botches it and gets hurt. And you're sort of like, you know, it's summarized as as uh, you know poor decision-making, late start, you know, things like that. And you're sort of like, oh my God, what what idiots. Like, I don't but know. That's why the best <laughs> part of this of whole
4: book this year, Pete, I think is in this Cathedral Peak write-up. The um, Maybe you guys saw this. The, it says, the climbers humbly said that they were, quote, incompetent, exhausted, ill-equipped, and cold. <laughs> and it's like normally... You can't really like say that about people, but it like came from the climbers themselves. And I think it actually takes like a pretty introspective person to admit, you know, like I was super out of my element and I never should have been up there because usually we try to be like, well, this happened and this happened and those are all reasons. But like at the end of the day, it takes a lot to be like, I was totally out of my depth, you know?
2: Yeah, I, I think like for that person to make that quote unquote confession, That's the type of person who is really going to learn from their mistake. And also, like in some ways, might last in climbing a really long time because they have that capacity to kind of go, well, this is the unvarnished truth of it. We'll be back with more after the break.
1: Like when we say the word safe everyone knows what that means. Like, safe is safe. It's the absence of danger. And on one level, it's pretty objective, but it's, I think, kind of a fascinating thing because the moment you drill down into it, it becomes clear that safety, when it hits the real world, it's completely subjective, right? Like, you think about it, not just in climbing, of being like, well, we're being safe, right? When Alex says that, that might mean something very different from when I say it. And then you think about it, like, in terms of, like people's lives and you're like, well, you know, you could have a very safe life and sit on the couch all the time, but maybe that's actually not even that safe in the end too. Like, I, I guess like working on this book, do you feel like no one actually agrees what safe is? Like as someone who's sort of having to be like the moderator of that discussion, yeah, that, do you think there is actually one definition of safe?
2: I mean, that's a great
1: question. And, you know,
2: the best I can answer that is, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's, so many definitions of what is safe uh, out there in the climbing world. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, A week ago, I was belaying my friend and his daughter was there. And his daughter is pretty much my adopted niece and we get to go climbing together. So she's nine years old, we're having a great time. And her dad is top roping and and taking forever working these sections. So I just have him locked off on the Grigory and I'm chasing her around the gym And sometimes both hands were not on the rope, I (laughs) confess. And someone came up and goes, sir, we we believe you know what you're doing, but you really have to keep one (laughs) hand on the gree-gree. So I, I guess that's a case in point of how there is a right way, a very safe way to do things. But based on our experience and the things that we have to do or do in the real world, um, Sometimes we forget and something like that is, uh, I mean, I thought I was pretty safe. He wasn't going to hit the ground.
0: Well, the question too is, is well, when you say sometimes we forget, I mean, isn't the bigger issue when we're intentionally choosing not to do the thing that is supposed to be safe? You know, it's like when you start to get slightly complacent and you get used to it, you're just, you know, whatever it's habit. I don't know. I was thinking, you know, in in sort of preparation for this chat, I was thinking about all the sort of official ways that you're supposed to climb and then all the ways that I climb now, <laughs> you know, because like my, my aspiration nowadays is to reach the top of a cliff with no gear left on my harness and then just sit behind some rock and belay my partner up, you know, like, because if you wind up with a whole bunch of gear left over the top, you're sort of like, oh, why'd you carry it all the way into the mountains and all the way up the mountain. You're like, who cares? You should just like sit down on something and belay. But like, obviously, that's not what's taught in any kind of book. But, you know, it's kind of habit now and it, and it works and it's great. And I don't know. It seems like the real safety issues are when you're choosing not to do the thing that you know is textbook, but but you just can't be bothered.
2: You know, I totally agree with that. There's like what actually gets done and what actually works, and then what the textbook is. And and uh, I guess I, yeah, I was talking to to Lauren the last time we were we were speaking in preparation for this interview, and I go, well, you know, there's the the front I have to put out there as the editor of this book. And then there's the things I know I have to do and do do in order to climb the things I want to. And it's, you know, there's, there's so, many, so many different standards out there, to your point. Yeah, I, I just think it being attentive and competent, like those are the two things one has to possess. And a lot of the accidents we see here is one, yeah, people being inattentive, or two, they're getting in situations where they're not competent.
4: Well, I think what's like interesting, too, when you talk about the idea of textbook, is that the textbook like changes over time. Like I feel like if any of us now like went out to go sport climbing and I put you on belay with an ATC, you know, while you're about to like lead your sport project, you'd be like, what the hell is that? You know, like that's not how we like do things anymore. But like for a really long time, it was totally acceptable to like climb with not gri-gri because they didn't exist. But now you'd be like, what? That's super sketch. I'm not doing that. And I think there's like textbook that changes over time. And I'm curious how you guys have noticed your idea of, I mean, both towards safety, but also like away from it, you know, in the things that you're like, well, I've kind of like accepted this.
2: Yeah. You know, regarding using an ATC, you know, and also having a Grigri, like I see quite a few accidents because people don't know how to use an ATC. They think it's only for repelling. And yeah, you see these super complex intricate scenarios unfold. And when you get right down to it, when I'm interviewing someone, I go, have you ever used an ATC? They go, Oh no. And I'm like, well, you really should learn how to use that because
1: you wouldn't be talking to me if you did. So, Breaking the rules is one thing, but, like, not knowing the rules and then breaking the rules is, like, a really easy way to get into trouble. I mean, breaking the rules, you can get into trouble, too, but there is a level of, like, of kind of knowing, you know, what's textbook and then being, like, I'm conscientiously trying not to
0: do that. Yeah, you're, you're saying there's a big difference between knowing the rules and intentionally breaking them versus having no idea what the rules are and just blundering your way into a certain circ- circumstances that you just could not foresee. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's an important distinction, because I think that I know the rules pretty well, but sort of intentionally choose to break many of them. <laughs> but but I do think I do know them. you know, I mean, I've read Freedom of the Hills, I've read all the all the books <laughs> over the years, you know, like how to rock climb all the all the classics. But now I just intentionally choose to ignore most of it actually so it's funny that um, I've at, at Events over the years. I've probably had like a half dozen people ask me to sign their copy of freedom the hills You know people ask you to sign whatever but um, but whenever I sign freedom the hills I pretty much always sign, you know, like like this is great to a point or like learn this so that you can ignore it, you know, or random <laughs> like variations of the theme where it's like, this is a great thing for you to learn, but you should not apply it too wholeheartedly. You know, it's like, like, don't take this as dogma because it's like a good foundation, but you don't need all of this. I think a great example of that is, is uh the modern prevalence of simul climbing, it's like sort of a, for high end climbing, like simul climbing now is not really a textbook, but it's just. Accepted. It's done. It's relatively safe. It's it's like it's a normal strategy, but it's just not in the book.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I I use that as a. I was saying I was preparing for this conversation. I was like, simul climbing is such a good example of that because if you are to Google anchors, best anchors, like all like there's a cajillion things come up of you know all the different things you could be doing with your anchor management and and all this stuff. But then if you actually, it's it's harder to actually find a solid system for. Simul climbing, like a modern system for it. That's actually like, you got to go kind of deeper down into the Google results to even find that information, which is kind of wild. I mean, I don't think simulclimbing is like crazy prevalent, but it's certainly prevalent enough that you but it's think it's pretty that common. That, yeah, it's pretty common. Um, you know, it's not, it's a, you know, an advanced technique, but it was so interesting how that's like been one of those things that everyone's like, oh, I don't know if we should encourage this or something and they don't write about it. You know, the
0: idea of simulclimbing being an advanced technique, I mean, there's so much content on other sorts of advanced techniques, like, you know, how to do dead hangs on tiny edges for, you know, X amount of time, blah, blah, blah. Like basically all the training material is like incredibly well documented. And you know, it's like on any Instagram page, you can find all kinds of like, you know, max power endurance workouts, like make sure you do seven, three and not six, four, if you want to isolate, whatever. And you're kind of like, that is so niche, you know, it's like by comparison, someone climbing is downright simple. You're like, oh, you just climb up the wall and you don't stop. You know, it's it's just weird what type of content is heavily shared nowadays. You know, it's kind yeah. of all indoor focused and and like
1: comp focused and not like safety and outdoor focused. All that sort of simul climbing information is on like the dark web, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I you,
3: mean, know well, you know, we, we
0: do jokingly call it the dark arts. Yeah, it is the dark yeah. arts when you start getting into the weird stuff.
3: I mean, I wonder if that is partially because you know, with the training stuff, people are just relying on themselves. They're just going into the gym, they're cranking out reps. There's nothing else involved with, with like simul climbing, you're relying on your partner, you're trusting your partner, you know, in a way that is just different than even multi-pitch climbing. And so I wonder if part of that is just that you, you have to find the right partner and it takes a lot of trust to engage with someone on that level. Yeah.
2: I mean, I would say that the indoor stuff is like a It's it's more of a common genre, whereas, yeah, any time you're going to be simul climbing, it's some sort of an adventure climb. And, you know, one paradox that occurs to me when we're talking about simul climbing is, you know, if you're in the mountains, it's safer to simul climb or solo in many situations. So if you pitch something out and you're below a serac that you have to cross underneath, yeah, you're, you're basically saying, here I am, shoot me, uh, versus running across a the gully you know going fast and and minimizing your time exposed to hazards and and i see this a lot too where people say well this is how it should be done and i'm like well it it, that's how it should be done if there's certain uh parameters set but one example i'll bring up is i got critiqued because i gave a slideshow and i was showing off with climbing and i wasn't wearing a helmet and it's traditional climbing therefore you should always wear a helmet but You know, I know at least one case where someone had placed a piece of pro, they were wearing a helmet, they turned sideways, the helmet got stuck, he's trying to clip the gear, the gear clips to the helmet, and he's yelling, his partner puts him, thinks he needs to be on tension and starts pulling on the rope, and it's literally strangling him, and It's one of those things I could see if you took a whipper down a squeeze chimney and your helmet got stuck, it it would break your neck and you did everything right. You were wearing a helmet, but the helmet killed you. It's, I mean, you you can't make this shit up. It's like, I'll see it and I go, wow, like I could never have thought this up. Like Hollywood could never think up a scenario like this. So that- I think that's why you just don't climb off
0: with for fun. (laughs) It's all a terrible story. I mean, that's a good point. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think that there's this interesting, like, discussion in climbing, which I don't think is based on a scenario that happens that often, in which you're, like, in a position where you're at the crag and you're seeing someone do something that is, like, heinously sketchy or maybe, like moderately sketchy and you have to decide, like, am I going to go over to these strangers and like tell them, you know, that they're doing something wrong and like you're trying to make this thing. And I like have this idea of the safety police, like of being taken to extremes of times when I feel like I or people that I know have been critiqued by significantly less experienced climbers for doing something that is potentially not textbook, but totally valid And, like, for me, it comes back to this moment of there's, like, ironies all over this story. But uh, after Brad Gobright died, a bunch of us from Yosemite, including, like, pretty much the entire current Valley Search and Rescue team, went down to L.A. for a memorial for Brad at a climbing gym. Everyone was like, well, we'll just go early and, like, climb a little bit before it starts because there was the kind of this awkward situation where there's, like, a memorial happening in one corner of the gym and like people climbing actively in the rest of the gyms. We're like, oh, we'll just go early and climb. And basically we all have to take a belay test because you have to take a belay test every time you go, you know, to a new gym. And like the whole Yosemite Valley search and rescue team fails the belay test because of some proprietary rule that existed at this one, you know, LA climbing gym. It's a really like high stress environment and you've got like a teenage climbing gym employee, you know, telling these like massively experienced. These people like definitely know like, how to use a Grigri, you know, but they had some proprietary rule that's like, this is how you have to do it in this gym. And I just felt like there was all this irony in this moment of getting safety policed, of feeling like that, but also feeling that like anger at like, I know how to do this. Like, don't tell me, you know, how to use a gri because I've been using a gri longer than you've been climbing sort of anger that started to like build up at this moment in the gym. And as like all- everyone is failing this test and um, yeah, I don't know. And I just feel like, yeah, it, com- it always like reminds me of moments where like, obviously there's a, like, there's just a million different ways to do things. My guess is that you've all also had moments of having like awkward interactions with folks. I mean, Pete, you just talked about one that you had at the climbing gym too, of just being like having those confrontations with people, not over like things that are obviously dangerous, but like just differences in like ways that you've learned how to do things.
1: Have you guys ever safety police someone? I'm like curious whether like whether you actually have gone, like ever, have you ever seen something actually out, you know, in the wild and, and sort of stop somebody or like- Yeah, I've I've
0: steadily become a more outspoken safety policer over the years, like I mean in particular in, in Yosemite. Like on on El Cap, like when you we were doing the no speed record, let's say every time we would pass a party that's doing something sort of unorthodox or, or, you know, counterproductive, I would just tell them like, oh, you're hauling sort of wrong or like um, and we've had a bunch of times where I, like uh, coming into the stove legs, I came up to a guy that didn't really speak much English who was basically like holding a quick draw and about to just cut loose and take the swing of his life like into a corner. And I was like, you're going to die. And we basically like <laughs> grabbed him. It was like, no, no, don't. And then try to like teach him how to do a lower out because. You know, you can't just swing there because you'll just hit this corner and probably break your legs. Or may- maybe he would have stuck it, but either way, it was like definitely not best practices. Someone and, and he has broken been their they Probably legs hurt
4: doing in that
1: exact yeah, spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's like, and he was a big tough dude, you know, like he was, but he was looking at it kind of like, oh, I don't know. You know, it's the kind of thing where someone like sets up to take a swing and then they start to think about it more and they're like, oh no, I don't want to take this swing. But so definitely in circumstances like those, I'm way more outspoken now. Where I'm just like, look, it seems like you're botching. Like wh- when, when do you go up to somebody and just tell them that they're botching it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, my, my contention is that you should do that more often than you think you should. You know, that it's probably better, especially if you're not, if you're not douchey about it, but be like, uh, you know, have you thought about what will happen if this person falls or like, Oh, Hey, I noticed that you have four meters of slack out and your you know, partner's only three meters off the ground. You know, should you, con- I don't know, you know, you can be tactful about it, but I feel like it's generally better to say something than to not say something.
4: But has anyone ever been like, Hey bro, I got it. I mean, probably not because you're Alex Hunnold, but I just feel like if I did that all the t- like as often as you did, I feel like I'd get more. Like, I'm afraid of the pushback. People being like, yeah, I freaking No, I I really, I I rarely Uh -uh.
0: do this, honestly, because I don't like talking to strangers. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if you see something that's actually sketchy, I mean, it is kind of your obligation to say something. Also, the pushback. I mean, well, who cares? I think that, I mean, isn't the point to feel like you did the right thing? You know, it's like just to say, you know, it's like it's like having integrity or whatever. You're sort of like, oh, you see like if you saw someone about to step into traffic, like you would stop them. You know, be like, oh, that person's on their phone and they're about to step in front of a truck. You're like, whoa, I should do something. You know, I feel like seeing somebody, you know, load their Grigri backward at the sport crag or something is kind of the same genre of mistake. Like you should you should just intervene if you see something that's like an accident waiting to happen.
4: I think there's more, it's like easy when someone's like fully botched it, right? Like the Grigri is not loaded correctly and it's like, like a really high stakes. It's really easy. But then I feel like there's lots of those middle grounds of like, they like they kind of have a lot of slack out. It's not, you know, or like just things where you're like, uh, it's pretty borderline. And I feel like that's when it gets like harder, you know, to feel like you're like, well, there are different ways of doing things and people interpret things differently. Like,
0: but but don't you think that it's still better for somebody to bring it up and then to have the, the very brief conversation where you're like, oh, I appreciate your input, I, per, you know, I know that, and I prefer to do it this way for this reason, and it's all a totally adult conversation, it's chill. I mean, that's the thing is, it doesn't always have to be contentious. I mean, you can just tell somebody like, oh, I think that might be a little too much slack out for this particular situation, you know, like no offense, just, you know, want to make sure your partner doesn't get hurt, you are like moving on, you know, and, and if they choose to get offended by that, that's that's their choice, you know what I mean, like, I mean, you can say something politely and respectfully, but still just have their best interest in mind.
3: I actually, several years ago, was climbing at an easy crag in Red Rock and saw someone belaying inappropriately and said to them, like, hey, you know, maybe you should think about doing it this way. And they told me they were an AMGA guide and that I was wrong. And I was like, okay. And then about 10 seconds later, their partner fell and hit the ground. And um, there was a rescue that had to happen. And it was like, just... Awful. It, like, it, I mean, I just remember thinking like, man, I said something and this still happened. Yeah,
0: but and isn't that better than having not said something?
3: Yeah. At but, least you don't have to second guess And I'm guess not that saying way. that that means we shouldn't say anything, but it just, I, I think it's hard too, because sometimes if, you know, especially a female speaking to a male, like I was in this instance, like it can be a little tough sometimes to get the reception because people think that you don't know what you're talking about.
0: Uh, yeah, but I think that the thing to to focus on is just doing the right thing, which in that case, you're like, well, you did your part. You did the right thing. You can at least sleep yeah. well at night knowing that you did the best you could. And, you know, beyond that, you're kind of like, well, it was truly that person's fault. Like they really botched it. You know?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I did the wrong thing. I think it's just more interesting that like that dynamic exists sometimes in this conversation that, you know, people, you might approach someone and, and they might not trust you or or hear what you have to say
2: yeah worse yet they might they might in defiance of your instruction or your advice they might they might get even worse i could see that happening too there's a there's a high level of indignation in the climbing world um and uh yeah you you kind of you know risk running into that i guess
0: but Um, but that shouldn't be a barrier for doing the right thing You know, it's like no matter how indignant somebody is or how upset somebody gets, I mean, that shouldn't stop you from from doing what's right in a given situation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think the way I think about it is like if my partner was doing something sketchy, I would want someone to say something to them if I was climbing, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually have had plenty of you know, chastisements over the years, you know, where random people are like, that's sketchy. What are you doing? And you're kind of like, oh, well, I, you know, I'm choosing to do it this way for a reason and I think it's fine. But, you know, if something had happened in that particular instance, you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, they were totally right. That was sketchy. I don't know. Yeah, I remember I, yeah. I was I once uh, climbed the third pillar of Dana in Tuolumne like classic five ten, and I got to the top and I was playing a partner up, and somebody on the top was like ranting about how he hated people that had sketchy anchors and blah 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 about like I can't believe somebody would do that, and then kind of like looked over and I was playing up a single number one Camelot, <laughs> the, like you know the only piece I have left or whatever in this one block, but I was like it's fine, we're sitting on top of the mountain, you know like, you know I felt very safe. But then the guy went off and like, you're the, you know, blah, 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 about how it's totally unsafe. And I'm like, yeah, that's not, it's not best practices and you wouldn't want to do this all the time, (laughs) even though I kind of do that uh, almost all the time. You know, it's just hard to say.
1: You're kind of like, yeah, but it's a choice. Like, I think this is okay. Pete, you pointed out there's like a, but like a, I think there's a couple terms you or phrases you've heard, but the very consistent nature of gravity. Like if you look at the the initial cause of every accident, it's like oh, gravity. And then you know then there's the context there. And when you come out into the w- real world, is there like do you feel like there's any such thing as a safe climber?
2: I think the safest climber is the person who doesn't climb because yeah, gravity is this constant force. Gravity's always waiting for you to drop your guard, and you can learn all the best processes and procedures. You can have all the right tools. You can have all the perfect techniques. You know, you can be alert. You can be all these things. But I think what every climber, if they want to be called a climber, needs to understand that every time they start climbing, they're taking their life in their hands. And that's part of what makes climbing what it is. That's part of why we love climbing. We take that... It's kind of that responsibility and that alertness on, and we own that. And I think the the trouble is, is when, you know, people might feel entitled to climb a certain grade or they feel like they're without putting their due diligence in that they're capable of doing something, you know, and they don't take the proper precaution or they cease to pay attention. That's where you see accidents happen. And I think if everyone, like when we went out there said, wow, you know, my life is on the line, my partner's life is on the line. then I think statistically climbing would get, get safer.
0: We'll be back with more after the break. To be fair, though, I mean, I think climbing is safer than many other sports and even sort of mainstream sports like mountain biking or something. You know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that. You know, most climbers are rarely injured. I think that the the important distinction with climbing versus other sports though is that injuries are often fatal or can be, you know, the, the stakes in climbing are really high, but climbing isn't that dangerous. I mean, we all have a lot of friends who have climbed for 40 years and never had any kind of injury. Yeah, I would agree. Except for like, you know, tendon injuries where they're wow. like, oh, my middle finger is a little strained because I was doing that mono move over and over. And you're kind of like that is grossly different than people breaking their clavicle mountain biking like every other season.
2: Yeah, like I think if we could get real good statistics on, you know, user hours out there uh, per cat or per climber, you know, and came up with a, you know, a sum total of that and then compared that against the accidents. I, I bet you climbing would be statistically an incredibly safe sport. And I think that's because if you're any distance above the ground, it's in our nature to be alert and to consider what the ramifications are. And I think, yeah, you know, our fears play into that. It's like, wow, this is a spectacular position. I'm
1: a bit anxious or afraid. I'm gonna pay more attention, so. like climbing's exploded, right? And in theory, this book has kind of always been about the same size. You know, there's a, the, and obviously maybe you're like selecting more, or like not doing duplicates of, of each accident. Like I, I feel like the, maybe climbing is becoming safer. Like people are actually becoming better at it. There's like like the the reality of, of the fact that there's so many people climbing and yet this hasn't turned into like a four volume edition every year.
0: That's just because Pete's a good editor. He just throws most of them away. He's like, whatever.
1: <laughs> we already read this do one. Do you guys see more? <laughs> like, are there more uh, reports coming in than there were ten years ago or twenty years ago? Yeah, you know, I was looking back at the
2: charts that that record the number of accidents that get reported. And I would say that it has gone up in numbers. I think what you see published in the book is reflective of the page count we have to work with and how many accidents can we actually report. And but has it gone up per capita? Like, has it gone up per,
0: per as a percentage of climbers? Because there's so many more climbers. Like, obviously, there are going to be more accidents. Yeah. Yeah. But are there
2: proportionally more accidents? Th- that I I kind of doubt, actually. I, I don't know. You know, we don't have a statistic on how many people actually climb or how many, you know, days or hours those people actually climb. So it's, it's hard to get data. But yeah, I, I would say for my gut, yeah, I'd say there's the proportionally probably the same number of accidents. Yeah, there's just way more people climbing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an arms race,
0: like uh, gear has gotten so much better, like hardware is safer, everything is kind of better in some ways, but then you have more random people who don't know how to use the gear, you know, pushing the gear to its limits. And they're sort of like, oh, you know, it's getting safer in some ways, it's getting sketchier in other ways, and it just balances out at about, you know, same number
2: of people having accidents. Yeah, my gut says yes, I'd agree with that.
4: Yeah, I wonder too, if it's something like unique to climbing the way that I feel like climbers love to think about accidents afterwards. You know, like Alex, you talked about that you you know, pretty much always read the accidents book when it comes out. And I feel like, yeah, there's this unique thing in climbing where it feels really important as a climber to like, when there is an accident, especially a fatal one, to like take some time to like stop and analyze it, you know, and like do these write-ups. And I kind of wonder like, I mean, if it's just us trying to prevent ourselves from being in that exact same position in the future, or if there's something kind of unique about climbing that makes it so that we, like, I feel like when I hear that someone's in a climbing accident, my initial reaction is to like really want to know exactly what happened. And And I, and I don't feel like that happens as much in other sports or even like other aspects
3: of life. There is a industry that can compare though. And I think that's flying like aviation is that way.
0: But the similarity is that they both are super rare for accidents. And then when accidents happen, they're catastrophic. So I think you have to learn from other people's accidents. I mean, I think aviation is the perfect example because accidents are super, super rare. But when they happen, they're devastating. And then it's like, you know, you kind of have to learn from any accident that occurs because you don't have that many other opportunities to learn. Like, it's not like you're going to make lots of small accidents on a daily basis. Yeah, It's like the big ones happen from time to time and they're a big deal when they do.
3: Well, and it's also like a partnership It's not a sport, but like sport in some ways, right? Where you have always two people flying an aircraft that's commercial anyways at all. And so there's like a lot of communication involved. And it's so similar to climbing in that way where it's like you have to analyze the exact things that happened in the communication, like where the communication breakdown was. Do
0: do, uh, do pilots Um, start every flight with flying, fly on, (laughs) you know, off flight, (laughs) flight off when they land. They have
3: like a, (laughs) there's like a a 90, there's a list of like 90 things they have to like check off, you know, before they... (laughs) <laughs> is it worth noting
0: that your husband is a pilot i feel like that probably hasn't been in, uh, so. <laughs> in many other episodes of this podcast but. he's
3: just like a super nerdy <laughs> plane person yeah <laughs> i actually know nothing about planes please don't ask me anything
0: <laughs> but but you know but you know a lot about pilots you know
2: <laughs> <I do. laughs> what uh what, what's the question Pete? like alex have you ever had a sketchy <laughs> moment free soloing where you're like whoa like like I got to pull it together or I'm in big trouble or I'm really pumped and I better punch it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've had tons of sketchy moments free soling but a lot of them are over before you know it, you know, like uh, on Royal arches once I pulled a big rock off and then kind of shoved it back into place before I lost balance. And, you know, it was like a big flake peeled back and I was peeling back and then I like put it the flake back into place and then sort of like caught my balance and was like, Whoa. And so by the time you even realize what happened, the situation's already resolved, you know, and I've had that with like breaking holds and and you know other I don't know, like I had both my footholds break off once like downsoling this like Choss Tower and Chad, and so you're just like dangling by these jugs, and I was kind of like, "Whoa, but you know by the time you realize what it's happened, it's already happened, so it's like in the past. but yeah, I mean that's kind of the nature of soling a lot is you just get all kinds of weird situations. I would say actually, soloing is one thing where you do have to sort of learn it for yourself because there aren't that many. You know, it's not like there are a lot of soloing. I mean, occasionally you see soloing accidents and in, in the report every year, but not really. And there, there isn't that much to learn from most soloing accidents. You know, I mean, you can a little bit,
2: but for the most part, you have to you have to live a lot of it. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of teachable moments in uh you know these free solo accidents. The thing I do see is there's there's more and more and I. You know, we have been seeing—it's the influence of, I think, the pursuit of social media uh, that's coming into play with, yeah, some of these free solo accidents. Whether it's what people see on the internet or whether they're building a following, and you know, it's such a, uh, you know, a slippery thing to try to determine cause and effect, but it, it is a disturbing trend I see within, um, yeah, accidents because. I just remember, yeah, free soloing when I was coming up in Yosemite. It's just, it's what you did. You you kind of, it was just part of being a climber, just like going bouldering or climbing El Cap or jamming your hands in the crack. Free soloing was part of the game, but the mythology was always that no one is ever going to die free soloing because, you know, we're all so tuned in and we're making, you know, some pretty strict judgments about what we will solo. And these days... I swear some of the stuff that comes across my desk I'm like oh man like what are these people thinking they're threshold free soloing and they're on sighting and uh sometimes it doesn't work out for them and uh you know I'm not passing judgment but it's like I think there's something of a I don't know the self-preservation mechanism that that I used to take for granted just isn't there all the time. So th- that's why I asked that question. I go, well, you know,
0: do do you think do you think that's true that the self-preservation isn't there or do you think that the that the drive for glory or whatever is just greater than the drive for self-preservation? I mean, there're plenty of stories of of old-timers who are sort of seeking the seeking glory in a way, you know, I mean, some of the famous stories of like Yabo, John Yablonski Soling, you know, in stone master times are definitely in the same, you know, obviously he wasn't a social media influencer, but you know, it's like he was, he was his
2: generations,
0: uh, you know, sort of iconic influencer.
2: Yeah. He wanted to, he wanted to hold his head high in the parking lot as we used to say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say that's true. And I say, if you know, I would say that, yeah, if uh, one's desire for whatever that affirmation is exceeds one's judgment, then yeah, we're going to get these type of accidents. And I definitely have had my moments free soloing where it's like, whoa, you better get really good because you got about 30 seconds to, to make up your mind, what you're going to do. So,
0: yeah. And, and, and do you think there are more soloing accidents now than there used to be? I
2: think overall. Yeah. Yeah. But it, that once again might reflect the fact that more people are climbing. Yeah, I I actually kind of felt like there are fewer soloists
0: than there used to be, which I, I don't know if that's true or not. But you definitely see fewer people casually free soloing. I think than you yeah. did you know, ten or fifteen years ago. Like the, the kind of like casual after work five seven solos, like on easy multi pitches and things. Like you just don't really see that. And I mean, and I live you know near uh, near Red Rock, which is really like soloing paradise for easy after work soloing and you just do not see people on the easy routes here. Like, I basically have never seen somebody out scrambling. And I mean, Yosemite, you see it a little bit just because there's like such a culture of it, but I still feel like it's maybe less than it used to be. And, but that might just be me being less in touch with the scene or something, like, I, I don't know. But, you know, what do
2: you think? Yeah, I mean, I would say accident-wise, yeah, I definitely see a lot more free solo accidents. And I, I actually that that there's just way more climbers. But to your point, you know, I was worried for a while that, you know, we were trying to breed risk out of the sport, like we're trying to eliminate it. And that was reflected in what I saw was the end of dirtbag culture or the, you know, the decline of dirtbag culture and the decline of free soloing. So I remember when I heard about you, I'm like, oh, thank God. Like someone is like someone is like doing it, you know, because it was so. Intrinsically wrapped up into the identity of climbing, but that's the interesting thing with a conversation about safety is that
0: as climbers we celebrate selective risk taking. You know, like taking the right risks and getting away with it. You know, is that right? You know, like is it, like if we care about safety, we care about people staying safe. Like, should we be celebrating risky behavior? And and this isn't just specific to free soloing. I mean, think of like trad climbing in the UK and plenty of other places where where climbing is inherently sketchy. And yet we celebrate the people who take the biggest risks. And it's like, is like, should we be doing that? Like are we encouraging more accidents? You know, like I mean, people people ask me all the time, like, you know, do I worry that the film Free Solo has inspired people to solo more? And in general, I say that that I don't worry about that because I don't know, I haven't really seen it. But if you're saying that there are more people having free soloing accidents, I'm kinda like, oh, that's
2: that's sobering. You know, like that's that's obviously not the right thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think a question like that goes back to like our assessment of what climbing is. And I think climbing is, it is a celebration of a risk. It's a celebration of a risk that we opt into and that we make a choice about. I mean, and I, I think people should make qualified choices based on a level of experience and, you know, a a deep-seated desire to to test themselves or to, you know, learn more about themselves. So it, you know, it does come down to what role what role does risk play in the way that we define climbing? You know, Chenard said it really well. I, I interviewed him like a couple of decades ago, but he was decrying, you know, bouldering as not being a legitimate form of climbing because all climbing to be climbing requires risk. And then 10 minutes later, I asked him, well, have you ever had a in an injury, an accident? He goes, yeah. I go, what happened? He goes, I fell bouldering. So that <laughs> was kind of this uh, ironic. uh ironic statement that he made but yeah i'm sort of i still i'm
0: hung up on like and so do we double down on that like do we encourage people to take risk
2: i mean is is risk taking foundational to climbing i mean i don't i don't think we should encourage nor discourage it i think we should support people in affecting what they wish to do and i think that's it i think that's the the paradox about climbing but it's also what we love about it you know we have the choice to uh train really hard and try to climb 514. We have the choice to go out after work and free solo this 5.7. And if I think if people really owned all their actions in climbing and and also based their their goals and their judgment and set their vision in accordance to the reality that they live, well, we might not have so many accidents. Um I don't know. Climbing requires risk and it requires a choice whether we like it or not, or we just should not climb.
1: Thanks, Pete, for chatting with us. Accidents in North American Climbing comes out every year as part of a membership with the American Alpine Club. That's how you get the book. Visit them at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's show was produced by Marco Seiler-Gonzalez and me, Fitz Cajal. Additional editing and mixing and mastering by Evan Phillips. Music by Brendan O'Connell. Our YouTube and social media editor is Skylar Perwins. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports. And Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cajal for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening.